Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Sima Guang and the general mirror on good governance. We recently talked about the policy digests of the Zhengguan era, that Tang Dynasty book on the art of government, written in dialogue form, which also serves as a partial history of the reign of Emperor Taizong of the Tang. Today I want to tell you about another book on government, this one from the Song dynasty from the 11th century, which has actually been even more influential. And it's another book that is also a history text. And I want to tell you about its author, who was more than a historian and author, also a major statesman in his own right in his time. Sima Guang was born in 1019 in north-central China. His father, Sima Chi, was already a senior official in the government of the Song dynasty, founded in 960. And his family claimed descent from the imperial family of the Jing dynasty, established some 700 years earlier. In 1038, when he was only 19 years old, Sima Guang, like his father before him, gained the Jingshi degree, the highest imperial level degree achievable within the civil service examination system. Some would compare that to getting your doctorate by age 19. I would add that it's like getting your doctorate if in all of China only a few dozen doctoral degrees were handed out once every three years. The Jingshi degree, of course, qualified Sima Guang for a senior office within the bureaucracy. In his case, he was first made a provincial judge. Imagine going to court and finding a 19-year-old judge on the bench. That same year, as a bright young man with a brilliant future ahead of him, he married the daughter of yet another senior official. But also that same year, the Tangut people on the northwestern frontier established their own empire, which we've talked about before on this podcast, presenting a significant military threat against Song China. Sima Guang and his father, Sima Chi, jointly advised the court on how to deal with the Tangut at this time. Then, in quick succession in 1039 and 1041, Sima Guang's mother died, then his father died. Per the custom of the time, Sima Guang retreated from public life to observe the mourning period lasting several years. In 1044, Sima Guang, now 25, returned to politics and quickly rose up the bureaucratic ranks, winning for himself a reputation for getting things done. Even as he worked hard as a day job, he wrote copiously, publishing numerous essays commenting on Chinese history. In 1046, the imperial court called the 27-year-old Sima Guang to the capital to serve on the ancient Chinese equivalent of the Supreme Court. A few years after that, Sima Guang moved to the Bureau of National History and worked there 
for several years. To us moderns, moving from the Supreme Court to a department in charge of writing history books seems like a demotion. But you need to remember the importance of history writing in the Chinese tradition, the fact that each dynasty carried a political responsibility for studying and drafting the history of the previous era. But despite eventually writing the book we're going to get to soon, Sima Guang didn't initially stay at the Bureau of National History. From 1054 to 1058, he went to the provinces again, serving in several capacities. Back in the capital after 1058, he was for a time a court advisor, like Wu Jing, the author of the policy digests of Zheng Guan. This means it was his job to tell the emperor things the emperor might not have wanted to hear, to find problems and failures within the government, and to suggest improvements. Then he served for a time in the Central Secretariat, the government's central policy-making agency, before returning to the role of court advisor. Somewhere in those years, he was also made a member of the Imperial Academy. But after the emperor refused to listen to a number of his recommendations, often because other vested interests were arrayed against him, Sima Guang grew disillusioned with the role of the court advisor. He resigned from this position in 1065, but remained an imperial scholar. The following year, he produced his first major historical treatise. The emperor read it, loved it, and encouraged him to write something even grander. Why not write a general history of China? And why not make it also a book of insightful instructions that would help future monarchs understand how best to run this country? Sima Guang took the encouragement to heart. However, the emperor who so encouraged him, Emperor Yingzong of the Song, soon thereafter died in 1067. Acceding to the throne now was the 19-year-old Emperor Shenzong. The young emperor was eager to do something and solicited ideas for reform from his ministers. Some of those ministers, for example, Wang Anshi, a man who deserves his own episode, jumped at the chance, proposing sweeping changes. Others favored caution and conservatism, some because they resisted change, and others because they understood the law of unintended consequences and knew that too many changes too fast can easily lead to disaster. In reality, both sides had some good points, but the result of Emperor Shenzong's desire for reform was the division of the Song court into parties, whose rivalry grew increasingly rancorous and bitter. Policy debates grew ad hominem, and faithful mandarins lost their positions in the political combat. During this time, Sima Guang largely sided with the conservatives, although he initially 
thought the reformers had some good ideas. In 1071, a fellow minister and a close friend lost his position due to voicing some criticisms of the reformers, considered overly vociferous. Now fully disillusioned with practical politics, Sima Guang retreated from the court entirely to focus on the task that Emperor Yingzong had suggested to him, the composition of a grand history of China that would also serve as a grand strategic instruction manual. He wound up spending the next 13 years of his life writing this book. When he finished it and presented to Emperor Shenzong in 1084, the emperor gave it the title Zizhi Tongjian, which may be translated as General Mirror Reflecting Good Governance. Sima Guang appeared to have expended almost the totality of his life force on this book, so much so that one Qing-era scholar later argued that Sima Guang actually suffered a stroke during the final years of the book's composition, citing a reference to him having a speech impediment late in life. He lived only two more years after finishing the book, dying in 1086, after briefly returning to politics. From the time Emperor Yingzong encouraged him to pursue the project, Sima Guang took a total of 19 years to write The General Mirror. And to be clear, Sima Guang didn't do it alone. He was a scholar of the Imperial Academy and could command the resources of the Imperial Library. And he could and did call on other scholars to help him. Even so, Sima Guang is remembered as the chief author of The General Mirror. The full text comes in at around 3 million characters. For comparison, the entirety of Sun Tzu's Art of War is only about 6,000 characters. And the General Mirror provides an account of Chinese history from 403 BC to 959 AD, telling the stories of 16 different political regimes over 1,362 years. Besides other established historical sources, Sima Guang and his colleagues pulled up lesser-known histories and even personal memoirs and other private accounts. In total, they relied on 322 sources, many of which have since been lost, and so are now only preserved by the general mirror in excerpt form. In structure, the general mirror follows the example of the Zuo Zhuan, the Zuo tradition, the ancient text that we've talked about on this podcast. In other words, it recounts events in chronological order, telling the reader what happened in one year, then the next year, then the year after that. But it supplies commentaries and explanations to help the reader understand the beginnings and endings of the many stories. And the book's focus is on the rise and fall of each political regime, the rise and fall of great powers, to borrow a phrase from the modern historian Paul Kennedy. So naturally, it's mainly about politics, wars, and 
the rivalries between different tribes and races. Remember Emperor Yingzong's instruction to Sima Guang was to produce a work that would help to educate future princes and prepare them for the arduous and highly imperfect work of government. Future rulers, or would-be rulers, in fact, took this notion to heart, so that The General Mirror became a must-read book for men and women in Chinese society who aspired to leadership positions. That, in modern times, includes individuals who aim to climb the corporate ladder and become CEOs. None other than Chairman Mao Zedong kept a tattered copy of the general mirror on his nightstand. People close to him recalled often seeing him reading it. Late in life, Mao bragged to an underling that he had read the general mirror a total of 17 times. And in the general mirror, Sima Guang proposed a view that is, I think, strikingly modern. Actually, it's so modern that many of us moderns are still trying to catch up to it. It's this relativistic view of the concept of legitimacy. Lots of polities came and went in the course of Chinese history, obviously. And oftentimes, multiple regimes coexisted simultaneously during the North and South dynasties, for example, or during the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms preceding the Song Dynasty. The same problem arose during the Song Dynasty itself, with the Liao, then the Qing, and then the Mongol empires taking over northern China. In modern times, we've had the problem of the Republic of China facing off against the People's Republic. When multiple regimes coexisted, who was the legitimate government of China? Even in modern times, many of us instinctively favor certain regimes over others. We tend to refer to the 12th century as during the Song Dynasty, when it would be equally accurate to say during the Jing Dynasty. Basically, we tend to refer to the side that represented the Han race as legitimate, and the regimes established by minority races as invaders and usurpers. Historians prior to Sima Guang certainly all tended to treat the Han Chinese side during a period of division as legitimate, as the proper government of China. But Sima Guang, in ultra-modern fashion, proposed that legitimacy is purely a relative matter. When multiple regimes coexisted, none of them is any more or any less legitimate than the others. Each is legitimate in its own eyes. This was a revolutionary idea for his time. And it was the opposite of ethno-nationalism. During the North and South dynasties, the Northern regimes were established by invading races, while the government in the South the Eastern Qing Dynasty, had been built and run by Han Chinese. But, Sima Guang commented, if the Southerners called the Northerners barbarians, then the Northerners called the Southerners equivalent names as well. The racial identity of a regime's rulers 
Sima Guang emphasized, was absolutely irrelevant to the legitimacy of the regime. For a medieval man, Sima Guang was very enlightened on ideas about race. But on the flip side, Sima Guang's views also imply that in periods of division, no political regime in China can be absolutely legitimate. If everyone is equally legitimate in relative terms, then no one is legitimate in absolute terms. Only when a regime has achieved national unity can it become absolutely legitimate. This means that in any given period of division, every regime has an incentive to continue fighting against the others until total victory. Short of that total victory, the regime's legitimacy is only contingent. It has an asterisk next to it. Remember how I said Mao Zedong read The General Mirror 17 times? Well, in today's situation between Taiwan and China, we see this problem. As a practical matter, one is tempted to say that Beijing can just leave Taiwan alone and let it go. Let it go on its own way, if it so wishes. But the polity on Taiwan remains legally the Republic of China. That was, and is, a rival regime to the People's Republic of China. Under Sima Guang's view, accepted since he wrote The General Mirror, the People's Republic has to keep trying to incorporate Taiwan. It has to continue to try to finish the Chinese Civil War. Because as long as the Republic continues to exist in some form, however attenuated, however diminished, however changed, however fragmentary, the People's Republic is not fully and absolutely legitimate. If the government on Taiwan now legally changed itself into a Republic of Taiwan, it would still be descended from the Republic of China and therefore present the same problem. In fact, it would be even worse from Beijing's perspective because it would signal permanent division, which means impossibility for the People's Republic ever to achieve absolute legitimacy. And this issue, in my view, is a crucial point that Western reporting on Taiwan and China almost always misses. But now you know. And on that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.